Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Let's say a word of prayer and uh, jump into this morning's message out of the Gospel of John. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your goodness to us, uh, for your life and presence and light poured out in our lives. Uh, And God, thank you for the great gift of music uh, that helps us and aids us in articulating praise to you. And we pray, God, that uh, now as we take a few moments in our time together to open up your word, uh, we pray, God, that you would give us wisdom, uh, you would give us new insight. uh, But Lord, help us not to just gather new information today, but help us Uh, Lord, to take uh, your word and be transformed by it. Uh, We recognize, God, that your spirit is active uh, in the preaching and the proclamation of your word. And so, God, uh, freely work in our hearts and in our lives today. Encourage us, lift us up. Uh, If necessary, Lord, convict us. And then may we all respond in obedience to you and whatever you would have to say to us today. We give you thanks and we give you praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, last week, Pastor Grace uh, picked up our series uh, that throughout this year we've been calling uh, The Gospel According to John. And uh, I I wonder, could we uh, we take a moment this morning to just uh, show our appreciation and love to Grace for the good job that she did last week in sharing God's Word with us? Um. We, we, began, uh, we began this year exploring uh, John's gospel verse by verse, and we're going to end the year by doing the same, uh, at least that will lead us up until Advent. Uh, however, uh, given that it's August and uh, we're only in John chapter 8, we will be picking up the pace uh, quite a bit in our series and in our study of the gospel of John. But uh, as we get started this morning, I want to remind you of a couple of things related to the, John's gospel. Uh, the first is that this, this gospel is really like uh, an onion. Uh, what I mean by that is that there are layers and layers of meaning that you can uh, peel back uh, until you are crying. <laughs> uh, either from the hard work it is to understand exactly what he's saying or from the, just the profound depth of what he is saying that just brings us to tears. Uh, so the gospel of John is, is a lot of layers. Uh, in every passage, every uh, story, there are just layers and layers of meaning that we could peel back. Uh, the second thing about John's gospel is that primarily what he is up to uh, is he's trying to help us uh, our, understand uh, the character, the identity uh, of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, in particular, John uh, famously includes seven I am statements uh, that Jesus uh, says, I am, and then he follows that up with some sort of word picture or metaphor. And, and the Gospel of John famously includes these uh, as a way of helping us to, to really grab a hold of and understand just exactly who this Jesus is. Uh, and last week, uh, Grace helped us to understand that what Jesus meant when he said, I am the bread of life. And ultimately, it kind of boils down to this, that, that all of us have these legitimate hungers and desires and needs in our life, but, but far too often we try to satisfy that hunger in illegitimate ways. 
But ultimately then, the, the point of Christ saying, I am the bread of life, is that, uh, that it is through Christ that we can truly have those desires ultimately satisfied. We need to go to him to satisfy those deepest hungers and desires. In particular, I, I liked how grace encouraged us to remember our need for God and our dependence upon, upon God each time that we find ourselves physically hungry. Uh, and so I hope that you did that this week, that every time uh, right around 11 o'clock when your stomach began to growl, I hope that that was just a, a, a moment of alarm or just a moment of reminder for you uh, that we are utterly dependent upon God uh, and that our physical hunger can in many ways point us uh, to those deepest desires that are only satisfied in Christ. If you, if you didn't do that this week, uh, I hope you'll do it. Um, if you didn't do it this past week, I hope you'll do it this coming week. Uh, today, in our gospel reading of, of, the, of John, I'm, I'm going to be looking at another I am statement. So I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. Uh, if you want to click to your Bible, that's okay too. And we'll also uh, have it up on the screen. But I want to read John chapter 8, uh, verses 12 through 20 to us this morning. John chapter 8, uh, verses 12 through 20. Uh, it says this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now the Pharisees challenged him and said, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. But Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from. And where I am going. But you have no idea where I've come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. Now, in your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true, and I am the one who testifies for myself, and the, my other witness is my Father. Who sent me? Well, then they asked him, Where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. For if you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. And yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Before we jump into the real heart of the message this morning, I want you to notice a couple of things. The first part of chapter 8 in your Bibles, uh, if you'll notice, looks different than the rest of the words. They are probably italicized. Uh, it, they're italicized to indicate that our earliest manuscripts of John actually don't include what we consider to be verses 1 through 11, uh, which is the story of Jesus' encounter with the woman caught in adultery where Jesus uh, bends down and writes in the sand and... and uh, Theologians have uh, argued for years about what they think that Jesus is actually doing there. What this means, though, is that the exact context of our passage is, is a little bit uncertain. We don't know, should it follow the, the story that, uh, of, of Jesus' encounter with the woman caught in adultery, or should it follow the end of chapter 7? And the short answer is, we don't really know. But because of this, because the context of this, of this passage of Scripture is uncertain to us, it, it means that the words of Jesus that says, but I am the light of the world, really seem to be coming out of nowhere. 
they come to us very abruptly, very suddenly. It's like they're just flying in from right field. And I'll try to work in as many baseball metaphors as I can. Uh, but to, So to help us understand uh, what Jesus uh, might mean when he says this, I think it will be helpful for us to understand one little detail in this story that John includes. And, and just as a side note, we, we should understand that in the Gospel of John, uh, every single detail is there absolutely 100% on purpose. And so if you ever wonder, like, why in the world would Jesus tell us exactly where this takes place or what time of day it was or any of that, uh, we, should, we should clue into the fact that there, there's probably a key to really understanding this story in that what seems to be uh, an unimportant detail. And so what John tells us is that this story takes place uh, in the temple courts where the offerings were put. Now, of course, by this description, we can infer that this takes place at what uh, was called the temple treasury. Uh, The temple treasury was also known as the women's court uh, because it was one of the few places in the temple where women were allowed But it is also the very busy place in the temple where people gathered to give their tithes and offerings. And I imagine today that if we had built a temple, the the temple treasury would also uh, double as a prayer chapel because it wouldn't be very busy. (laughs) Sorry, that was a horrible joke. I should not have gone there. That was too bad. Uh, We appreciate your generosity and support. but in, so in the temple treasury, there were, there were trumpet-shaped boxes uh, where people would give their offerings. Uh, and in the room, though, were also four candelabras, each with four lamps or, or candles. And these lamps in the temple treasury were lit uh, during the Festival of Tabernacles. And the Festival of Tabernacles was a, a time in the, in the life of of Jewish folks that was really meant to help them uh, remember their time of wandering in the desert. Uh, And I think there's something to sort of the patterns and the rhythms uh, of the Jewish life that that just help us to remember this is the story of which we are a part. (laughs) And, And that's part of the reason that we follow the liturgical calendar here at Emmaus is because we want to remind ourselves that we find ourselves in a story and we want to have our lives rooted in a particular narrative. And so we, so we celebrate Advent and we observe Lent and we go to the, the celebration of Easter and, and we look at Epiphany and all of these things in, in ordinary time or kingdom time uh, as a way of rooting ourselves in a narrative. Uh, but every year during the Festival of Tabernacles, they uh, would light these candelabras in the temple treasury as a way of uh, just part of the celebration, one piece in the puzzle of reminding themselves that there was a time when we were lost and we were wandering in the desert and we were waiting in anticipation for the day that we would arrive in the promised land. And so they would do this. Now, there's a lot of debate about what the lamps meant, but some believe that the lamps were lit uh, as a way of reminding the people of Israel of the coming of the Messiah. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That during this festival meant to remember a time of of wandering in the desert, a time of being utterly lost, that they would light these these lamps as a way of saying, there is coming a day when Messiah, the rescuer, will come. Makes a lot of sense. But it also makes a lot of sense because in the the life of the prophets, the prophets would often refer to this, this coming Messiah as the light. 
And so it made a lot of sense to, of course, light a lamp or a candle as a way of saying there is a light who is coming to us, who will rescue us from being utterly lost. In fact, the, the prophet Isaiah was, was famous uh, because he understood the purpose of Israel was to be a light to the nations, to, to demonstrate to the world by way of their lifestyle that this is what life looks like when God is in charge. <laughs> and so Isaiah would talk often to the nation of Israel and say, you need to live in this way, but you need to do it so that you are a light to the nations. So that you can demonstrate to people, this is what life looks like when God is in charge. And he was quite famous for that. But at the very same time when he was saying that, he had this cognitive dissonance. Because guess what? He also knew that Israel wasn't very good at it. (laughs) And so he would say to Israel, you are light to the nations. And then he would probably think to himself, but man, we're not very good at it. And so as he tried to like balance these two realities, that this collection, this community, this nation of people was called to be a light, but they really weren't very good at it. What he ultimately came to understand and began to articulate is, is something that could be summed up like this. That he would also say then, there is also a light who is coming. So you are the light, but there is also a light who is coming. There is one man who will sum up our life of Israel and will live faithfully just as we couldn't. And he will be the true Israel who will finally once and for all bring light to the world. I want to give you just a couple of examples from the book of Isaiah of what words, specific words that he would say. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you, and I will make you a covenant for the people and to be a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And then Isaiah 49, also in verses 6 and 7, it says, He says, It is too small of a thing for you to be my servant, just to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring those back to Israel whom I have kept. That is too small of a task. He goes on to say, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the very ends of the earth. For this is what the Lord says, The Redeemer and Holy One of Israel To him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servants of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And so the prophets, Isaiah, chief among them, are talking about this nation of people being a light, but there will come out of that nation a particular light who will faithfully shine the light to all the world. And then John goes to write his gospel. And his purpose, his primary aim is to help us understand who is this Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter born of Joseph and Mary, who is this? Isn't it natural then that John will pick up this theme of light? And so we see already in the gospel of John, in an effort to help us identify 
properly, Christ the Messiah, he says in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, In him was life, and that life was the light for all mankind. And the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people have loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. But everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So that may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. If you ask me, John in his writing is hitting a real home run. And so during the feast, of they, thank you. <laughs> so during the feast of tabernacles, as they gave their offering and they're surrounded by light, they're reminding them of the coming of the Messiah, the one who the prophets called the light. It is in this treasury and during this festival that Jesus pronounces to the people, "I am the light of the world." The first layer of the onion this morning is this. It is possible to be surrounded by things meant to point us to Christ and still miss Christ. It is possible for us to be surrounded by things that are meant to point us to Christ and still miss Christ. It's possible to be so wrapped up in finding him over here, in my side, in my circle, in in, in all the things that I agree with. It's so easy and get wrapped up in finding him here that I miss him when he shows up over there. It's possible for true light to shine into darkness and for the darkness to reject it rather than to be thankful for the light. And in case those platitudes maybe aren't hitting home, I want to just drive this home just a little bit more and say this. Our rituals are valuable in so much as they point us to Christ. Our rituals are valuable in so far as they point us to Christ. Sunday morning church attendance in many ways is a ritual, right? Particularly if you've been a believer for a long time, if you grew up in the church and you've just been coming uh, to church every Sunday morning for year after year, decade after decade, it's just something that you do. But guess what? The ritual is meant to point you to Christ. Going to church is valuable insofar as it points you to Christ, I don't want to say that without a whole bunch of other nuance, but for what I want to talk about this morning, I believe that to be true. But there's also, there's things that we do as part of even our gathering together that, that, that sometimes can come across as, oh, that's just ritual, that's just practice, there's no value in that. In fact, I, I hear a lot, uh, because we're a Nazarene church, and for our tradition, it's not as common. People say, oh man, you're really running the risk of communion just turning into an empty ris- ritual by doing it every week. And they say, you know, rituals can become dead. But I want to say this. The ritual is not dead or alive. The ritual is either true or false. It is the worshiper that is dead or alive. 
And so let's choose to be alive, right? Let's choose to be alive. Let's choose not to miss the light that is in our midst. And so I encourage you today when the time comes to come to the table, that you would come with a heart sensitive and alive to the work of the Spirit and allow him to fill you up and give you new hope today. I encourage you that when this time next week rolls around, to not roll into this parking lot saying, oh, I don't know what else to do or what else I would do on Sunday morning if I weren't here. But I encourage you to come up with a, with a heart and an attitude that says, oh, what does God have for me today? How can I go to church with, a, with an attitude of expectation and anticipation for how God might speak to me? Because guess what? Our worship is not dependent upon the personality of the person up here. Our worship is not dependent even upon the quality of music being played. Although our worship team did a phenomenal job this morning. Amen. But our worship isn't dependent on those things. Our worship is our expression of our love toward God and us opening ourselves up to him in response to all that he has done. And yes, it can be empty and ritualistic if we are dead in our hearts. Oh, but it can be alive and quickened by the Spirit if our hearts are sensitive to what God would want to do in us and through us as a result of gathering together. I, I, I want you to see today the picture of Jesus in the busyness of the temple treasury. There's crowds all around throwing their tithes and their offerings into these trumpet-shaped boxes, and those have all sorts of meaning that I don't have time to get into today. But there's all this stuff going on, and the candelabras are lit because it's the Festival of Tabernacles, and together this community has been doing all sorts of things to remember their time of, of being lost in the wilderness. And Jesus marches right into that setting, and he proclaims, I am the light of the world! And I hope what would happen is that in that moment, because the worshippers' hearts were quickened and alive and sensitive to the Spirit, that they would all turn their gaze upon Him. But I'm afraid there is also a risk that Jesus said that and it fell on deaf ears. And people just kept going about the business of the day, hoping for the Messiah to come, when in fact He was right there in their midst. The other kind of nuance or application that this has for us today is, is not only are, are rituals only valuable insofar as they point us to Christ, but, but our programs are valuable insofar as they promote practices in our lives. Um, the, the reason we have programs as a church is not so that we can feel really good about ourselves that we are doing something as a church. The reason that we have programs is not so that we can pat ourselves on the back because the church calendar is full. The reason we have programs is not even so much so that we can print a a bulletin that looks like there's something going on here. (laughs) But the reason that we have programs is to promote practices of Christian living in our life. And so we have we have programs to promote practices in our lives. We have ladies' night out to promote the practice of Christian community. We have faith, family, hospitality to promote the practice of generosity in our lives. We have life groups to promote the practices of community and hospitality and discipleship and learning to love others. And so I would want to say to you this, that if our programs don't promote Christian practices, then we're just like a group of ducks 
What? <laughs> We're just like a group of ducks that goes to duck church and hears a duck preacher tell them that God's design is for them to fly. And so we quack our amens and we go to the duck potluck. Say that a whole bunch real fast. We go to the duck potluck, but after we quack our amens and we go to the duck potluck, we all waddle back home. After we've just heard how God had designed us to fly. You see, our programs are valuable because they promote practice. And that's what we need in the church, is we need Christian practices so that people will look at us in all of our quackiness and say, they are so bizarre. They actually don't seek revenge when someone offends them. They actually work toward reconciliation. Those people are so weird. They pray for their enemies and for those who have persecuted them. What are they doing? Don't they know that's not how the world works? That's my prayer. Is that through the programs we would have practices built into us so that the world would look at us and say, man, there's a bunch of ducks. <laughs> There's this book I want to tell you about that I, is on my reading list. I haven't yet read it, but I, I've been told the premise, and I think it's so, it just captures my imagination. The, the book is called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And it talks about how in the world can, can a Christian community grow, thrive, and flourish inside of the, the empire of Rome. They're, they're just talking about, like, th- th- this is so bizarre that in, this, in the middle of empire, this Christian community would grow. And what the book talks about is that for the first few hundred years of the Christian church, there's not a single article, paper, or, or anything that we can find. There's no evidence at all of the church talking about the fervency of evangelism. Well, why not? Well, because the church was so foundationally different in the way that they live their lives than the empire that people, to stay with our duck analogy, flocked to the church. I find that very, very compelling. That man, like, if we live in Christian practices, we ought to, there ought to be something unique about us and who we are. In other words, what I want to say this is, is, God, would you help us not stand in a room full of candles where Christ is present and think that the candles are the light? Maybe a little bit bolder than that. God, help us not to worship in a room full of Bibles with the spirit of Christ present and think that the Bibles are the word. No, it's the, it's the light that points us to Christ. It's the the Bible that points us to Christ, it's possible for us to, to be surrounded by things that are meant to point us to Christ and still, still miss Christ. Let's not do that. 
the, the second layer of the onion is this. In this particular passage, Jesus is being put on trial to prove his identity as the Messiah. But here's the deal. Putting light on trial is a very tricky thing. Putting light on trial is very slippery. Because as soon as because because light has a tendency to illuminate dark places. And so as soon as you try to put light on trial and ask it to prove itself, what it does is it ends up exposing your own darkness. <laughs> and we see this played out in this passage. And I won't, I won't read the entire story, but rather try to summarize it. As you continue to read on after the passage that we read, it becomes clear that who is really on trial is not Jesus, but those who are opposing Jesus. You see, you don't have to read very far before you see how the light of Christ exposes the ugliness that is in their hearts. And so right before our passage, there are temple guards, and and this is in chapter 7, there are temple guards who are actually quite impressed by Jesus and in awe of all the things that he has done. But the Pharisees go to these temple guards who are beginning to think there's something to this Jesus guy. The Pharisees, that is the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees go to these temple guards and say, do you know any of us rulers and Pharisees that are convinced that this guy is the Messiah? Do you know anyone? To which they say, well, no. And so they say, say, clearly then, this man is not the light because of anyone we would recognize the light when we see it. And in this, we see the darkness of selfishness and egocentrism. Maybe even the darkness of being so certain that you miss what's right in front of you. Well, then as the story goes on, and starting with verse 13 and following, the Pharisees tried to discredit Jesus' testimony because he hasn't, doesn't have two witnesses, which is what we read, uh, to, to which Jesus replies, uh, myself and my father, there's your two witnesses. <laughs> but in this, we see the darkness of legalism. In verse 31 and following, they get into an argument about what it means to be a child of God. And the Jews say, we are Abraham's children. We are part of the in crowd, the chosen people. God is our father. But Jesus says, no. If God was your father, you would do what Abraham did, which is to have faith in God and to know him, to recognize God when he knocks on your door. But Jesus says, because you don't know me, your father is actually the devil. They take this to mean that Jesus has just called them illegitimate children. And so they take tremendous offense to it. And so if you read at verse 48, it gets to the point that they call Jesus a Samaritan. Which is the equivalent of saying, you are not one of us. We have come to question your identity to the point that we can say we are not even brothers and sisters anymore by race or by ethnicity. You are a Samaritan if you're going to talk like that. But then they go one step further. You are a Samaritan and the devil. (laughs) So they call Jesus and they say essentially to to him, you are not even one of us and you are demon-possessed. A double whammy. And in that, we see the darkness of demonizing anyone who is other. 
You see, they're trying to put the light of the world on trial, but what's happening is that their own darkness is being exposed more and more because putting light on trial is a tricky thing. Well, then I want to read to you verses 53 through 59. It says this. They, this is, they eventually get to this fever pitch that says this. And, and again, the context is they're talking about the, the children of God. We're child of Abraham, and God is our father. Verse 53 says this. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar just like you. But I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Seeing my day. He saw it, and it was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. (laughs) And that blew everything out of the water. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. At that, they wanted to kill him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. It ends with Jesus, this, this little scenario, this putting light on trial, ends with Jesus saying, before Abraham was ever born, I am. The Greek here is ego emi, which is really fun to say. <laughs> but this is the exact Greek reconstruction of the Hebrew phrase that God speaks to Moses in his burning bush moment. When Moses is being called to free the people, uh, he says, who am I supposed to say has sent me to do this? Because it's a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And, and the bush says, tell them I am has sent you. Now, scholars have debated forever about what this means, but uh, our, our best understanding of what it means is, is something like this, that when, when God says to Moses in the burning bush, and then when Jesus says in this setting where he's saying, hey, hey, we're, we're the same guy, right? We're related. <laughs> and he's trying to make this point across. He says, I am. It essentially means this. I am transcendence. I am life itself. I am light itself. I am love itself. Existence itself presence itself, that whatever, whatever you are talking about, when you try to talk about the thing that transcends everything, you're talking about me. <laughs> and at this, of course, at this echo of, of, of God, who is Yahweh, of course, the Pharisees would pick up stones to try to kill him. But what happens is that the light of the world exposes their darkness. And this is what happens when light shines. Darkness is called out exposed, and then the darkness is put on trial. And this happens even when the darkness thought it was light. Even when the darkness thought that it was the light, and it tries to put something that it thought was dark, the light, the true light, will always shine. So when you put light on trial, it exposes your own darkness. Here's the third layer of the onion. I want to submit to you this morning that this is precisely what happened 
on the cross. That what we see when we see Jesus upon the cross is Jesus' death on the cross is not at all about God killing Jesus because he was so angry at sin that he had to kill someone and he might as well choose his son. That is not what the gospel is about. That is not what the cross of Jesus Christ is about. But rather, the cross is about the light of the world taking on all the sin and brokenness of all the darkness in all the world and overcoming it by continually piercing the darkness with light. And so every act of violence against him is absorbed with love. Every insult is met with forgiveness. Every mockery is muted by the love of God and his light for his person, and the, the love of the light has for his persecutors. And so, what we see in the cross of Jesus Christ is simultaneously the ugliness of all the darkness and violence and hatred in the world and the beauty of the love and light of God. That's what's happening on the cross. What's happening on the cross is they're trying to put light on trial. But in trying to put light on trial, it reveals a brokenness and a system of sin so corrupt that it would execute an innocent man. And so in trying to put the light on on, on trial on the cross, it ends up revealing our own brokenness and need for the light. So the cross is the place of God's light and our darkness. But thanks be to God, the light has shined in all of the world and the darkness cannot overcome him. I have this this picture in my head. I wish I knew some really good filmmakers to, to put this on film. But I have this picture in my head of this radiant figure of light. But because the light is casting shadows, you can see that this this figure of light is carrying a cross. But around this cross-carrying light is all kinds of darkness. And the darkness all around it is is trying to overcome the light. You could even say it's it's attacking the light. It's throwing stones at the light and insults and, and mockery and whips, but Despite all the effort, the the light never fades. And then the light figure is hung on the cross that it was once carrying. And still, still the darkness is doing its worst to close in. And on each side of the light, there are, are two figures, one darker than the other. But the one who isn't quite as dark says to the light who is hanging on the tree, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And at that moment, whatever, the darkness that is left in the, in the one figure actually goes into the bright light in the middle. It's not that the darkness is, is chased away, but the darkness in this one who says, oh, light of the world, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? At that moment, that light is chased into the, the greater light. The darkness is chased into the greater light. And the darkness is absorbed. And so now the light of life can shine in the thief. 
And then just before the light of the world breathes his last breath, he says, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. And at that moment, all the darkness around him that was trying so hard to attack and overcome the light and yet could not, at that moment when the, when the light in the middle says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, all the darkness of all the world is actually absorbed into the light. It's chased into the light, but it doesn't matter how much darkness the light takes on. It doesn't get any darker. It just keeps shining this brilliant, radiant light. Until soon, all the wor- darkness in all the world has been chased into the light and absorbed and overcome. And so now, streams of light flow in every direction from the one light because now the world has been refounded on an axis of love rather than hatred and violence. Friends, today, I want you to see and I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. (laughs) He is the radiant light that absorbs all darkness. All systemic darkness in the world, all personal darkness that is in us, has been overcome through the light who is Christ. The work, the challenge, what we often call discipleship, is coming to live more and more in line with this truth. That I don't have to live in darkness anymore. But I can live in the light of Christ. Amen? Amen.